0: This week, um, I I found an article uh, online uh, on Psychology Today's website, and the the title of the article was, The Best Way to Get Revenge. (laughs) Uh, Just to be clear, I I wasn't searching for the best way to get revenge. Um, I stumbled across it as I was searching the Latin phrase, Lex Talionis, but we'll come to that. Anyway, the article had some interesting insights. So, for example, it it said this. It said, Revenge-seeking has deep, seemingly instinctual roots in the human behavioral repertoire. Since the dawn of civilization, the highest authorities have sanctioned harming someone in the same manner as he or she has harmed you. From the 1754 B.C. Code of Hammurabi, the sixth Babylonian king, to the Bible, Exodus chapter 21, which says, you shall appoint as a penalty for life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The ancients specified how the impulse for revenge was to be carried out. From the time we were barely able to put together full sentences, we yearn for revenge, screaming, that's not fair, in response to a perceived injustice, such as, a, such as a sibling getting a dessert that we don't because we're being punished maybe, and following that outcry with the vow, I'll get you, aimed at mom, dad, or the babysitter for giving preferential treatment to your brother or sister who maybe shares a bath with you. As adults, this article continues, as adults, we're only slightly more sophisticated in response to abuses by others. A small insult, getting cut off by a driver, can launch a highway chase for miles, either to cut that motorist off in the same way or to deliver the hand gesture known as flipping the bird. Deep insights from psychology today. But did you catch the sentence in there that referenced the Bible? The eye for an eye passage? It said this. The next sentence was this. Since the dawn of civilization, the highest authorities have sanctioned harming someone in the same manner as he or she has harmed you. As I said, I was, I was looking for the phrase lex talionis. Here's a definition um, from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Lex Talionis. This is the principle that was developed in early Babylonian law and present in both biblical and early Roman law that criminals should receive as punishment precisely those injuries and damages they had inflicted upon their victims. Many early societies applied this eye-for-an-eye eye principle literally. Literally. In ancient Palestine, injury and bodily mutilation, as well as theft, were considered private wrongs. As such, the matter was settled not by the state, but between the person who inflicted the injury and the one injured, an attitude that also prevailed in early Rome. Talion, lex talion, was the ultimate satisfaction a plaintiff might demand, but was not mandatory the injured person could obtain satisfaction with money if he wished. On the principle that that two different persons could not have exactly the same bodily members, the Palestinian sages enacted a law by which the injured party could not demand an eye from the person who caused the loss of an eye, but could demand the value of his eye. This led to the abolition of Talion, lex talion, in Palestine. And until the 18th century, talion provided the rationale for such corporal punishments as flogging, branding, mutilation, the stock, the pillory. The principle still serves as a partial basis for punishments or the assessment of fines against minor offenders in some legal systems where customary law is acknowledged. So the legal precedent that we could summarize for the moment as an eye for an eye is rooted in the earliest known writings and societies. Let's read what the Bible actually has to say about this. So Leviticus chapter 24, verses. I'm going to read verses 10 to 23, the end of the chapter. Leviticus 24, 10. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian went out among the people of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was uh, Shelemith the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, he is as he has done it, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. Whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Father, I pray that you'd give us uh, what we need today as we look at your word, your law. Help us to see Jesus Christ and the grace of God in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked at the opening verses of this chapter, Leviticus 24, and we saw that the uh, what I called the regular light of the lampstand, it was to shine on the regular bread of the presence. We connected that the light shining on the bread uh, to Jesus' declarations that He is both the, the light of the world and the bread of life. And in fact, this is, what, this is what we concluded last week as we looked at the previous section. I said this, Each Lord's Day, the illuminating oil of the Holy Spirit lights up Christ for us in the Word of God. Your, your Word is a, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And that path is this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. This is why I said that the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, Sunday when we gather together, it's actually, it's actually a feast because the light of the world is shining His countenance upon us, graciously feeding us the bread of life. Now, we should note as we we come to verse 10, that, that the book of Leviticus, so far in our study of this, it's almost entirely the various law codes for the nation of Israel. Now, I said early on in our study when we began this book, um, that there is a there is a threefold division of the law, right? Although sometimes there's sometimes there's overlap, essentially God's law can be divided under three headings. There's the, the moral law, the civil law, and then the ceremonial law. So when you when you hear of God's moral law, think the Ten Commandments. Right? Think of those laws that, that all people, and especially we as Christians, are bound to obey because they reflect God's moral uprightness. Of course, the, the civil laws, the second uh, sort of division of the law, the civil laws are those laws for national Israel. And so we think of things like, um, like the tithes that served as taxes or the commands to show justice to the poor, or, or laws that, that regulated inheritances, or, or even like we see in these verses. Again, in many of them, there's an overlap with God's moral law, and we can learn much from them, but these laws were written for the nation of Israel. And, and then, there's the, then there's the ceremonial laws, those laws that, that really pertain to tabernacle worship. These are the laws that that govern, as we saw, the lampstand and the bread, for example. These are laws that have been fulfilled by Christ. We could argue that that all of the law was fulfilled by Christ, but the specific ceremonial laws were given as as types and shadows of the one who has now come. And and, and so those types and shadows are no longer necessary because we have the reality. We don't need a, a lamp shining on a on a bread a loaf of bread because we have the light of the world and the bread of life in jesus christ we also acknowledge that we have seen we've seen application uh, for new testament believers through all of the types of the laws we've studied through this Um, this makes sense because all scripture is god-breathed and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction, for training in righteousness. And we also understand that the law was given within a a narrative context, meaning it was given to, to real people who lived in a real place and were dealing with real issues, right? So, similar to how um, the United States, our own nation, and our Constitution, it was written at a specific time in history, and there's a whole story uh, behind its development and its adoption and, and why there were amendments and things like that, what the nation was going through at those times when the amendments were written and so forth. Just like that, the same is true for the law of God. It was, given in a, it was not given in a historical vacuum, it was given within the story of the nation of Israel. So they've just been redeemed, they've just been saved from their slavery in Egypt, they're headed to the promised land, and we find in chapter after chapter after chapter of the book of Leviticus how they are to live, how they are to worship, how, they, how the law governs their daily affairs. And every once in a while, even in the midst of the law, we come across a narrative, a, a story, It happened in Exodus, it happened with the giving of the, um, when God was giving the law to Moses on the mountain and the people were, were making a golden calf. In the midst of God giving His law, we see this story of the people of Israel turning to idolatry. It also happened with the strange fire of Nadab and Abihu back in chapter 10. In each case, both the golden calf and the strange fire, each of those was an example of a grievous sin committed in the midst of the life-giving law. And if the case of, of Nadab and Abihu, if that served as a special warning for the priests, we looked at this, I don't know, months ago in chapter 10, it served as a special warning for the priests to honor the Lord by obeying Him fully and, and revering especially His holy place and, and, and bringing the offerings exactly as He said. If that's true of the priest, then today's passage serves as a, as a special warning for all of the people of Israel, whether they are the, the native citizens or sojourners, to honor the Lord by revering His holy name. Now, there's, there's a couple of reasons, a couple possible reasons, why this story is inserted into the law right here. It, it may have been that this incident actually interrupted the Lord's giving of the law to Moses and that, and that time needed to be taken uh, to address this specific sin and the related sins. That's actually what happened both in the golden calf incident and in the strange fire incident. The Lord sort of was interrupted as the sin started to run rampant, and so He addressed it immediately. But this also could have been inserted here because it serves as an illustration of the theme of this part of Leviticus. In fact, the theme could be summarized as this, showing due reverence to that which is holy. One author I was reading this week put it like this. The story of the blasphemer. The story of the blasphemer stood in direct contrast to the theme of holiness. And it distinguishes the whole book, emphasizing how life devoid of sanctity may debase men. How life devoid, absent of holiness, may bring us to our absolute most depraved. In other words, this this story provides a contrast to a life of holiness. It serves as a solemn warning for the people of Israel that the name of the Lord is their sacred trust. So let's consider these, uh, we could call it irregular words. These irregular words. Look again just at verses 10, 11, and 12. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel... And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was uh, Shelemeth, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Now, for, I guess, obvious reasons, the Bible does not give us the specifics of what was actually said that was blasphemous. Um. But we know that this was a clear violation of the third commandment. So they've been given the law already. And the third commandment, Exodus 20, verse 7, says this, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. But up until this point, even though God has given that law, don't do that. Up until this point, the Lord has not given them the penalty for breaking that law. So during a fight between two men and and perhaps they're not quite men. Perhaps they're young. Maybe that's why one of the reasons why he's listed as the son of. Maybe he's teenager. Maybe he's younger than that. But in this fight between these two men, one of them used the name blasphemy. That is the name of the Lord and he cursed as well. It says he did two things. He blasphemed and he cursed. Now, it was on the the basis or the authority of the name that the people of Israel were even redeemed from their slavery to begin with. Do you remember the beginning of the Exodus story? Do you remember how it began? It started at the burning bush. And it was there in Exodus chapter 3 that the Lord told Moses to lead his people to freedom. And in the middle of that interchange, while Moses is at the burning bush and God is instructing him, we read this in in verses 13 to 17. So it's Exodus 3, 13. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am... Who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the The land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey. It was on the basis and authority of the name Yahweh that Moses had led the people to Mount Sinai on their way to the promised land. As a result, for the people of Israel, Yahweh's very name is highly regarded in the Jewish mind. So much though that even today, even to this day, observant Jews do not pronounce, um, either when they read aloud or in conversation, they don't pronounce Yahweh or, or Yehovah. Instead they replace it typically with a different term. Uh, sometimes when they're praying they use either Adonai, which means my Lord, or Elohim, which means God, or in everyday speech, they might use the the word Hashem, which means simply the name. All of this was because the name represents the character of the one who holds it. God himself tells us this. He he tells us this in, in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 8. This is God speaking, and he's describing himself to Moses, and he says this, the Lord, the Lord, let me stop. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And so, to blaspheme the name is to blaspheme God Himself, Yahweh Himself. Now, this this connection between the the character and the name, that's actually something we know a little bit about, right? Um, We say things like, uh, He was dragging my name through the mud. or or I'm going to go out and make a name for myself. We understand that that's about about character. It's about reputation. We also know that that throughout the Scriptures, um, names can be praised, or they can be preserved for an inheritance, or names can be blotted out. There's an odd incident. There's an odd incident in the life of King David that illustrates, at least in some small way, what is happening here in this blaspheme and cursing. Um, if, you, if you can find it, turn over to Second Samuel chapter 16. I want to read verses 5 to 14. This is an illustration. So 2 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 5. 2 Samuel 16, 5 says this When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and all of the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and his left. And Shimei said, uh, as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Azariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Azariah? For he is cursing because the Lord has said to him curse David if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him curse David who shall say why have you done so so David said to Abishai and to all of his servants behold my own son seeks my life how much more may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and the Lord will repay me for the good uh, with good for this cursing today So David and his men went out on the road, while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. So this is a a servant, just a a normal citizen. He's cursing out the king, cursing out King David. And just notice here, there's a lot going on there, but just notice that this cursing involved name-calling, it involved an accusation of great evil, verses 7 and 8 especially, and it's clearly spoken, he's throwing rocks at him and throwing dust into the air, he's very agitated, it is spoken with great contempt for the king. So what's going on here in Leviticus chapter 24, it's not It's not just simply, not necessarily that this man just simply used the name Yahweh as a swear word, although that would be bad enough, but he's almost certainly speaking great evil of the Lord, showing him utter contempt and rejecting him as king. I said a couple of minutes ago, the people knew that this was a violation of the third commandment but they don't yet know what the penalty for such a violation is. And so they bring the offender to Moses, they identify him, and they hold him in custody while they await God's judgment. Now, there's a little detail in here that's, that's kind of bizarre. Um, his mother and his family lineage through his mother are all named in verse 11. That's not very common, actually. But remember, It also says that his father was an Egyptian. It says that his mother was of the tribe of Dan. Why do you think those details would be here? Well, I think one of the reasons is this. It seems um, probably very, very likely dad was not there. Probably very, very likely because it names his mother repeatedly that dad, the Egyptian, is still back in Egypt. It means that his Egyptian father worshipped the gods from whom the name had just redeemed his people. And here he is, the son, cursing and blaspheming the name of the Redeemer. So the seeds of idolatry are beginning to sprout in the camp. But then listen Listen carefully to what happens in the tribe of Dan many years later, after they've gone into the promised land. The book of Judges, chapter 18, gives us this interesting account of the book of, uh, of the tribe of Dan. It's 18, beginning in verse 16. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and and they took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. This idolatry, this is idolatry. The idolatry of the tribe of Dan, it spread all through Israel. It wasn't just limited to this one boy, young man. It had spread through the tribe. It spread through Israel. So that generations even after this, in First Kings chapter 12, we read this. So the king took counsel and he made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Let me just tell you what this means. You've gone to the tabernacle to worship long enough. behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went out as far as Dan to be before one. And he also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. The tribe of Dan is pointed out as not consistently honoring the name they they compromised their faith they worshipped idols and it spread it spread not only into the whole tribe but into the whole people of israel so that even the king had turned to idols had abandoned yahweh and set up worship places of worship in the outskirts of the nation and he said behold your gods who delivered you out of egypt even the king now is guilty of blasphemy. They compromised their faith. They worshipped idols. In fact, um, later, uh, in the list of the 12 tribes sealed in Revelation chapter 7, Dan isn't mentioned. The tribe is lost to history. They're gone. Truly, a, a, little, a little leaven of blasphemy leavens the whole lump. A little bit of cursing in one young man leavens the whole lump or as James chapter 3 verse 6 puts it, and the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell words spoken do a ton of damage God's people must take the name seriously and not tolerate blasphemy in the camp. And so what must they do? Well, this brings us to the, to the regular, justice. regular justice. Let's start verse 13. So Leviticus 24, starting in verse 13, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp the one who is cursed. Let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes in the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So as the Lord issues this verdict here, the people are instructed really to follow three steps. First, the blasphemer was to be brought outside the camp. This will become the regular pattern um, for death penalty cases in Israel. Dead bodies were ritually defiling for the people. They they make them ceremonially unclean, and the Israelite camp was to to remain pure. The second step is this. So not only were they to bring him outside the camp, but secondly, all who heard the blasphemy laid their hands on him. Think Think about the personal nature of that for a moment. False accusers, false accusers often, often can't look in the eyes the person that they're lying about, right? False accusers will lie, and it's easy to lie behind um, social media or anonymously. But they had to lay their hands on him. This is a very serious crime. This is a capital offense. Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 6 provides a, a principle that exists in certain places even today. Um, Deuteronomy seventeen six says, On the evidence of two or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. This is great wisdom, right? This is where you get out of the he said, he said argument. There are witnesses. These are very serious charges with very serious consequences if they are true. And Jesus picks up on this when he's giving instructions about church discipline in, in Matthew chapter 18 when he says this, if he does not listen, that is the person who has done the offense, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Scripturally speaking, witnesses to these crimes, they cannot hide behind anonymity. But, but there's something else here that actually combines those two steps together. We've already seen it. In fact, back in chapter 16, verse 21, we read this. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. That's on the Day of Atonement. As... The high priest would confess the sins of the nation to, onto the scapegoat, remember? And that scapegoat would be let out into the wilderness, never to be seen again. That sin was to re- be removed from the camp, never to be seen again. This man, this man here paid for the guilt that he brought on all of those that he polluted with his blasphemy, his sin. And, and that's, the third, that's the third step here. He was was stoned to death by the congregation. Now, back in chapter 10, when Nadab and Abihu sinned by bringing that strange fire into the the tabernacle, God himself put them to death. Remember, they were priests. That means that they were intermediaries between the people and God. This man man is considered a a sojourner, a, a resident alien. And so it was up to the people to see that this sin was removed from their midst. Pick it up in verse 17. um, Because the Lord uses this event to issue some some related laws uh, of regular justice. So verse 17 says this. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good. Life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it, shall be uh, done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. Whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So this brings us back around to that legal concept of of lex talionis. And the principle behind all of this is that the, the punishment must fit the crime. Here we can see three truths about God's idea of justice, okay? Truth number one is this. Crimes against humans are far more serious than crimes against property or or against animals because humans are uniquely made in the image of God. Therefore, we have humans have Any human has a special worth and a special value because they are made in the image of God. Interestingly, one of the laws that God gave to Noah, so long before he issued these laws, one of the laws that God gave to Noah after he came off the ark, Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6 says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. It's the death penalty for murder cases. The world increasingly refuses to believe that God made man in his own image. You know that. You've seen the the elevation of pets to the status of children at the same time as children are being discarded by the millions. You understand what's going on here. The second truth is this. Penalties must be appropriate for the crimes now verses 19 and 20 articulate this concept of of lex talionis of equal justice eye for an eye this means simply that the punishment should fit the crime in other words regardless of what uh, psychology today said this isn't about revenge see the israelites were to understand this concept not as not as barbaric but this ra- rather in fact one writers said this, it, it limited the scope of revenge which always tended to escalate indiscriminately and endlessly in any tribal society. A literal interpretation of the concept of, of eye for an eye was what the, what the Hatfields and the McCoys practiced and it just escalated and escalated and escalated until you get to the point, it was about a pig, did you know that? They were fighting over a pig and it turned into an entire war between clans. But the Israelites, they were to see this as a concept of equal justice. So all the way back, I'm going to prove this to you, all the way back in Exodus chapter 21, verses 26 and 27, we read a very specific example. So Exodus 21, 26 and 27 says, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Do you see this? It's not that the slave should be able to now knock out his master's tooth. It's that if he is an abusive master, he should be set free. This is about equal justice, no matter who it is. And this is the third truth about God's justice here, the penalty was to be applied to all, whether Israelite or sojourner. And by implication, this means rich or poor, slave or free. Again, all human beings are made in the image of God. And so this legal concept, this is not the case with the nations around Israel. Many of them practice the literal eye for an eye. But But in reality, they only practiced it if they injured someone in in an upper class. If a rich person injured a poor person, or or the lower class person uh, would be given uh, maybe a little bit of compensation. Maybe. Mostly nothing happened. Mostly there was no justice. But if a slave injured his master, you can be sure that eyes and teeth would be extracted, if not worse. But what's interesting about all of this, what's interesting about all of this is that Jesus himself addressed this law specifically in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5, verse 38 to 42, he says this, "'You have heard that it was said, "'an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. "'But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. "'But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, "'turn to him the other also.'" If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is teaching here not a, not a strict interpretation of the law, but that his people must be characterized by a love for others. That's what he's teaching. That's what this is about. God's people must be characterized by a love and a patience and an endurance for others. And then this chapter concludes with Moses giving the instruction and the people doing as the Lord commanded in verse 23. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. So, How are all these things related? Well, it's worth worth pointing out the general movement of the entire chapter. Think of last week and this week. From verse 1 all the way to the end of this chapter, the progress is from the inner sanctuary right next to the Holy of Holies to the outermost edges outside the camp. This chapter has deep associations with the Day of Atonement. But this entire chapter, the light, the bread, the hallowed name, all of it has a greater reality. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 9 to 16 says this. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which uh, those who serve the tent have no right to eat. But the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do you get that? We're called to go to Him outside the gate. Where was he outside the gate? On the cross. We're called to go to the cross and bear the fruit of those who acknowledge his name. Not blaspheme his name, but acknowledge his name. Who proclaim Christ is Lord. We must treat the name. We must speak and live as if God's reputation is at stake. We We don't live as... Muslims or other honor religions, defending violently a blasphemy against the name. We speak the truth. We acknowledge the name. We proclaim the truth. We have a high view of the sanctity of human life. And we call people to fear the name that is above every name. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are called to proclaim the name. To say, Christ is Lord. Pray with me. Father, sometimes we do want to seek revenge when we are wronged. We want to cut off the person that cut off us or fight for uh, our own rights, our own personal name. Father, I pray that we would bear fruit of those who acknowledge that Christ is Lord, that we would proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ That we would be the ones who proclaim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. That we would be a people who quickly and readily admit that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That it's not about our name or my name, but that Christ's name be praised. Father, we pray that you would transform us into Christ-likeness, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.